Hello and welcome to Disc Coverers, the internet's only podcast where we read, review, and rank all 41 of Terry Pratchett's seminal Discworld series of novels. I am one of your hosts, Iris J, pronouns she, z, or they. Uh, with me are my co-hosts, uh, June, Grace, and Belina. Feel free to introduce yourselves. Hello, I'm June. Uh, I have pronouns, probably, but I can't remember what they are, so don't worry about them. I am the internet's beloved Princess Grace. She, her, fay fair if you're spicy. And rounding this out, I am still Belina, she slash they. Wonderful. Uh, and you are the listener. I don't know what your pronouns are, but I'm sure they're delightful. Uh, today, we are tackling the 13th book in the Discworld series, one very near and dear to my heart, 1992's Small Gods, a standalone volume within the Discworld series. It, uh, it follows a much different part of the disc than everywhere else, much different characters, and some would say maybe a lot more of a, uh, a, how do I put this, a pointed and intentional critique of uh, the the facility of organized religion. Uh, Really, really interesting stuff. Um, I read this book so many times when I was a teenager, and, uh, oh, sorry. So... No, I was going to say, before we get into it, I think one thing that it would be worth doing is, uh, real quickly, what's everyone's experience with, let's say, organized religion in a big way? <laughs> like, I can go first. I was raised incredibly, incredibly Christian, uh, weird, culty place, lots of speaking in tongues, genuinely believing you could raise the dead and cast out demons that demons were real, that you did that. And I believed it wholeheartedly and was in it up until I got out in college after a long period of slowly escaping. Uh, and I'll get, I'll probably end up talking more about that later, but like that's my personal where I'm coming from with this. Okay. What about the rest of y'all? You don't have to share I, if you don't want to, but I think it might be worth it just to compare thoughts on the book. I mean, I think I probably had what is like the quintessential catholic upbringing that mm. you know my my parents wanted me to you know, go through ccd and the like i did technically get confirmed but like the old joke that only makes sense to catholics as soon as they confirmed me that that was the last they ever saw of me <laughs> so i've just kind of described myself as questing agnostic at this point and well coincidentally this I mean, this actually is a coincidence, because I got confirmed around then. It was about when all of the stuff about the Catholic Church came out, and oh. most of my family kind of lost their religion. We're mm. not going to go into that whatsoever, because, you know, it's one of those things people can look up or probably already know about anyways. But, uh, yeah, uh, basically my entire family didn't really have much religion after that. Wow. Hmm. That makes sense. Uh... I, well, I also had a Catholic upbringing. Uh, Both of my parents were Catholic, uh, but they also both went to uh, Catholic school for 12 years of their lives. So after that, they were not particularly religious at all. Um, I kind of was the driving force to get the family back into religion. Like before that, we were pretty much Christmas and Easter Catholics, but I personally was... Uh, bug fuck terrified that I was a terrible person 
and that uh, I was a waste of air to everybody around me and that uh, demons were real and were going to possess me at a moment's notice if I didn't get right with the Lord. Uh, so Dude. I attacked religion with a fervor and intensity uh, that kind of surprised my family, I guess. Um, but I kind of got out of it when I was an older teenager, uh, got disillusioned by how other people in the scene kind of treated each other and treated people out in the world and kind of started to wonder if I was maybe queer. And it was just kind of like, yeah, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I wrote a book about it, actually. It's <laughs> uh, a good book. Uh, my first graphic novel epiphany was partially inspired by my falling away from the church and also partially inspired by my parents' divorce. Uh, and now all of you listeners are my therapists. So if you want to get paid, you have to file with my insurance first. Uh, let's see. I was raised uh, United Methodist, which is one of your um, more anything goes uh, Protestant denominations. Very, you know, you could do Lent if you want, whatever. We don't really care. You know, come to church, have a casserole, whatever. Uh, did get confirmed. Uh, kind of stopped going to church when I went off to college. And uh, if you know anything about the United Methodist Church is that they are currently having a big schism about whether they are cool with gay people. So, oh, uh, fun. Yeah, big thing where uh, you can look this up. It was probably in the news a while ago, but... Uh, some of the churches are cool, and some of them are not, and... Eh, but... <sighs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't miss it much. I miss the community sometimes, but uh, what are you going to do? I was a real Jesus weenie for a couple years when I was younger, but uh, not anymore, baby. <laughs> ah, my favorite yeah. DC talk album, Jesus Weenies. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. Uh, How I... many references are we going to make to terrible, <laughs> terrible that-era Christian stuff? I have uh, to admit that probably the only thing that I really got out of my Catholic education was just learning how to guilt myself at a 12th grade level by the time I was in the 6th grade. Uh, but I'm sure nobody else has that kind of experience. Ha ha ha. I know better that I shouldn't go into a bunch of weird, like, weird tangent things here, but I'm just suddenly being reminded of this one really nice lesbian couple that often did the music at the church I was confirmed at. Oh, wild. Huh. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just, A, I'm real, A, realizing that I had those memories buried so deep, and B, I don't think I realized how wild that was at the time. Yeah, that's, that's, a big that's deal. pretty wild, wow. yeah. Hey, God. Good for them. Huh. Oh. I mean, I think they might not have officially been, but I, I'm sorry. Yeah. If I if yeah. I had a photo of them, you'd go, oh, those are definitely lesbians. Oh, oh yeah. The other thing is, uh, one thing that it was kind of well after I grew out of it, but after her divorce, my mom got really religious, really into Christian radio, really into this mega church, and like, uh, I've been to that church a couple times. It makes me uncomfortable. They have all this hmm. shit about uh. Oh, oh! If you're a man, you can sign the man pledge to always protect your wife and be in charge and stuff. And uh, yeah, one time, uh, she thought I was gay because I had a picture of um. It was of two men kissing, but it was for political reasons. It, yeah, you know, it wasn't gay in context. <laughs> but like, 
Oh, or like Russian taunt. one time she thought she walked in on me masturbating and like took me into her room to like say that, that's addictive and I'm your parent and you have the Bible says you have to obey me and I'm like I was in high school at the time so I was like what the fuck like I didn't agree to this what the hell this is a two way street so. I, I know this has gotten a bit weird to get the podcast with getting all personal like this, but I genuinely think it's a good way to start this episode because this episode is about religion. Yep, <laughs> it's going to be mostly about religion. It's a good baseline. Yeah. It's it's going to be about how specifically about how you interact with a structure of religion that has existed for a long, long time. And which is far more of a socio-political thing than necessarily a purely mm-hmm. ecclesiastical thing. Yeah, I'm busting out the, the five dollar words this episode. It's going to be the awesome. socio-political aspect of it, the aspect of it that isn't just the religion, but the construct around it, which this book is very concerned with. That's something that really depends a lot on like your personal relationship with it. I I mm-hmm. have a very different relationship with that socio-political aspect than someone else does who wasn't raised in weird fucked up church but who was more casually religious so i i want I, I just wanted to like talk a bit about that and also it's a bit serious of a topic but this is going to be a weirdly serious episode in some ways i think i think we'll still get some chances to get some you know uh giggles and gaffs in there Mm. Oh, some, this this book also made me laugh harder than most Discworld books have. Some hee-hees and ho-hos. Yeah, this was actually a really funny book. This is a really, like... I feel like this is maybe the most cohesive Discworld book we've read yet. Uh, and Agreed. part of that is because I get the feeling that it didn't start as a Discworld book. <laughs> oh? Yeah, uh, there's like there's, there's only the most tangential references to a lot of things. The, mm. the, the, the truly weirdest part is the fact that the book that it has the most in common with is Eric. Yeah, I want to compare it more to Pyramids, but good. Yeah, it definitely it definitely shares DNA with both of those books, and yet it comes off as much stronger than either of them. Yeah, My my partner literally described it when I described the book. uh, She was just like, oh, so it's just Pyramids 2. This time it's good. Yeah. (laughs) Like, this is probably the first Discworld novel where, like, I got together. I felt like I had read a novel instead of, like, a series of like mm-hmm. cool set pieces or whatever. This one has like setups and reminders and payoffs and yeah. like cohesive through lines and an ending. Yeah. Yeah. It sticks the ending, which is more than I can say for any of the Discworld books we've read so far. Reaper Man stuck half the ending. It kind of did. Yeah. I I know I say it like every episode at this point, but this truly is the first real Discworld <laughs> book. <laughs> Uh, uh, when mean, will we, we stop listen, finding the first real Discworld book? We get to like thud, and I'm like, wow, this really was the first true Discworld book when you think about it. God, I mean, we we de- I mean, we definitely did it with Reaper Man because Reaper Man was like a class above any of the other ones we'd read so far. Mm-hmm. Where I can see doing it with Small Gods because Small Gods is a very singular book. I don't. I've got a feeling we might do it with like the first of each of these specific touchstones. Like I could definitely see several of the Ankmore Pork books being like that. But oh yeah, I, we, we can't have more than like a dozen of these left. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, yeah, looking I ahead, I think this is where it starts. This really felt like the book where Pratchett hit his stride of what he wanted Discworld to be in a lot of different ways. Honestly, mm-hmm. and. That's I I have some 
less positive thoughts on that too i just just a lot to talk about with this book but overall it was just so good it had a villain it had a main character who was interesting it had a plot it had foreshadowing yeah. there were some really good bits of foreshadowing in the first couple yeah. chapters there mm-hmm. Uh, stuff oh. that stuff that I knew since you know it's been twenty years since I read this, but even at the time I'm going, oh, ha, ha, oh, that's good. I, I guess we're kind of into it, but so what did you all think of yeah. this book then? I oh, I was going to say it. before we get too into it, uh, why don't we get a rundown of the plot from oh, our yeah. amazing Synoptrix Belina? Whenever you're ready, feel free to take it away. Okay, so to warn folks ahead of time, we're. We're trying to let these stretch out a little bit more. I still think that I ended up cutting more stuff out than I really liked, but, you know, we're we're trying to make these synopses a little less have to be a minute long, which is good because I almost always did at least 90 seconds anyways, but mm-hmm. we're trying to flesh them out a little bit. Yeah, we're now, getting to the point where it's inconvenient to try to fit them into a minute. <laughs> yeah, I'm, also, I'm I can't still understand only most pretty much going down the A plot for the most part, but thankfully there weren't that many B plots this time around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyways... The great god Om knows that it's about time for his next prophet, so he decides to manifest into the world. Unfortunately, despite the entire nation of Omni existing and being fantasy medieval Christianity, his actual believer count is sitting at one. Stuck as a tortoise without any of his cool god powers, he can only seem to speak with what he discovers as the last lone believer, the novice Brutha, who quite understandably cannot imagine why the gods he worships would ever decide to be something so small, basically yellow, and about as fast and cunning as the lettuce it hunts. While arguing with the supposed god, Brutha runs into Vorbis, the audio encoding format and head of the Quisition, who happens to drive have use for Brutha's perfect memory and complete lack of ambitions. A priest of Om was killed in Ephib, and Vorbis is leading a diplomatic mission after all of Omnia's military solutions have failed. Having never really seen anything outside of his home or the Citadel, seeing the horizons of the world start to have an effect on Brutha's own. The boat trip to Ephib and sneaking around to meet philosophers start to give him funny ideas about how things should work and the importance of questioning one's faith. He ends up asking a lot more of these questions, as it turns out that Vorbis had snuck an army through the previously impassable desert, and using Brutha's knack for memory to evade the only real defenses, he overthrows the palace. Brutha follows after a fleeing Didactylios, caretaker of the the greatest non-magical libraries in the world, and also coincidentally the man who wrote about how the disc isn't a sphere like the Omnian religion dictates, but rather that it's a flat disc that any sailor or eagle or Discworld reader knows from first-hand experience. This makes him unpopular with Vorbis and the library a lovely target to make a statement. Brutha helps by memorizing the contents of every scroll put in front of him. He can't read, but books in the Discworld are more than just collections of ink on parchment, and that's going to cause some weirdness down the line. While attempting to flee the chaos in a fee, Brutha and Om end up shipwrecked on the wrong end of the desert, along with a nearly comatose Vorbis. Om does everything he can to keep Brutha alive, who unfortunately does everything he can to keep Vorbis alive. Eventually, when they finally get to the other side, back to Omnian territory, Vorbis recovers quite suddenly, throws the first tortoise he sees over his shoulder, and bashes Brutha's head in with a rock. Brutha comes to a week later to, th- to find himself in the Citadel, where Vorbis is already being declared the new prophet, and when Brutha attempts to intervene at all, he finds himself strapped to an ironic brazen statue. He only manages to make a few desperate proclamations of the horrible injustice of the wrongness of the situation, but meanwhile Om has hijacked a nearby eagle's dangly bits to get a lift back to the temple. The tortoise ends up landing with, at high velocity on top of Vorbis's head, and faster than you can say, mission status sick, Om is riding on the sudden, fervent, desperate belief of thousands of people who are there to see the most incredible called shot in history. All that's left now is the combined armies of every other country on the continent who are fed up with Omni's entire... Uh, with Omni... 
We're fed up with Omnia's nonsense entirely. Bruther forbids Om from meddling in human affairs, but when his attempts to parlay fail, Om meddles in godly affairs instead, causing a storm followed by the strong army of half of Chorus Celestai to tell the assembled armies to chill out and make peace. Against all odd this works, Brutha turns the church inside out, ushering in the renovation lasting 100 years to the day, and hopefully the rest of the foreseeable future. Yay! Yeah, well that's, 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 that's about what happened. It didn't leave out that much. Yeah, you really... It, out, it was very exhaustive. Yeah. yeah. It left out some of the less interesting parts. It's weird, though, at the same time, it also feels less comprehensive just because the book fit together better. There wasn't, like, a B-plot that you left out, but details mm -hmm. being left out meant... I left out the entire the turtle counter-movement. I mean, like, I I just barely touch on it, but, like, the fact that they don't manage to accomplish much is kind of the point, I guess. Because mm -hmm. they're not—they're still fighting the same. They're still fighting the same way that Omnia fights. So. I that that part of the book was kind of weak for me. <laughs> there were some decent jokes, but they were—they were—they were jokes. They, yeah, it didn't. There and there. Okay, there were some good points, like Didactios. I can't. I I still cannot pronounce that man's name right because it's not written to be pronounced by hu a human tongue. It's didactylos, as in didactylos. Two two and dactyls, two as in two yeah, fingers, because he's flipping yeah. the world off. And also yes. a put on didact like a teacher. Yeah, and also right. on Diogenes or uh -huh. Diogenes. Now I don't know how the fuck that guy's name is pronounced, but I didn't know him personally, so whatever. Yeah, we can't. It's not like we can ask him. He's dead. Yeah. Amazing pun selection. Diogenes, if you're listening, call into the show. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Email us at disc.hyptovar.us. It's just interesting to hear that synopsis because there's so many little details that, like, in the synopsis, you miss out on how good they are in the book. Like, oh, yeah, he, he they go to Ephib and do a, try and overthrow them and stuff. But in the book, it's this whole, like, well, the reason he needed them was to na navigate the labyrinth, which Brother's first perfect memory can navigate. And it's this yeah. whole thing of how they get through it, how they deal with it. And, like, that ties into the problems with why Brutha can get around the city because no one's guarding him because no one could get through the labyrinth and it all like fits together really well mm -hmm. yeah i really want to probably kick off by talking about uh Brutha or brother uh i think we agreed to pronounce it as Brutha because saying brother brother is going to get really annoying in an audio <laughs> format really fast yeah like yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm way too white to the way that wants to be pronounced yeah. yes so uh, I, I would simply have to go all liquid snake voice. Brother! Brother! Um, but yeah, Bruda is a really, I feel like it's a really unique uh, Discworld protagonist. Uh, in that he's, one, he's really kind of like the key that fits the lock of the story. And two, like, it's great to watch him genuinely develop over the course of the book and like mm -hmm. mature and kind of grow into himself as a person. Uh, when it starts, he's a very, like, scared character. He's a very, like, the the book doesn't take any sort of gentleness to call him not very bright. And, like, uh, he has, his only thing that he's got going for him is that he has an uh, eidetic memory. He can remember things absolutely perfectly, no matter, like, how quickly he views them or experiences them. It's just... He's 
he's like, I think they literally say in the book that he's an empty vessel waiting to be filled up. And that's why he makes such a good believer for Om. He fears the, he fears his power. He can easily recite everything, every part of the Omnium religion that's ever existed. And at the start, at least he's, he doesn't know that he can question any of that stuff. And the whole thrust of the book is him slowly learning to eventually think for himself, uh, which is really interesting and which is really unlike any Discworld protagonist we've had so far. Most of them have just kind of been like acting and reacting on the world around them. This one is really like there's something there's internality going on here. Uh, so I, I find it interesting because one of my main thoughts on Bruda, what Bruda was just that, uh, he felt like Pratchett's favorite character archetype for a main character, which might be me looking ahead, but I, I really see shades of him in a lot of other stuff. Like Mort is an obvious one. Uh, just a lot of times there will be the, the journey of someone who is different, but in a way that allows them to see things slightly differently than everyone else does. Someone who is outside of society, someone who, well, uh, in this book, just is coded as very, very probably autistic is the mm-hmm. best way I'd say it. Uh, to slowly becoming someone who that way of looking at the world becomes what gives them an advantage, gives them an ability to push back against evil power structures. I feel like he did that a lot, honestly. And maybe maybe we haven't seen that yet, but I think it'll happen quite a bit in future novels he's the only guy who knows how to call out the bullshit of society and against all odds he does it for free (laughs) (laughs) i could definitely see mort being a uh being precedent for that kind of thing but i also definitely definitely feel like brutha was probably patient zero for this kind of character going on in the future a lot of that is also probably like because of the shape of the story that he's inside of being a lot tighter. Yeah. yeah more was more works. like normal guy fish out of water type of guy as opposed mm-hmm. to Brutha who's different. He's, you know, distinctly a guy who, you know, grew up in a society that's different from the way he thinks and has kind of taken advantage of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, I I really really like him as a main character. I think the book does a pretty great job with him in a way that mm-hmm. it hasn't with any other main character yet. Honestly, he has a journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's another, th- that was another thing I was thinking about with this book. This book ends most Discworld books, even though they have weak endings, they leave it open. They're like, okay, well, yeah, this problem solved, but uh nanny and the witches will be a uh, granny and the witches will be back in uh, the witches too. which harder in the future yeah. mm-hmm. don't forget to read it this one at the end he dies yeah he's he's gone both its main character and its villain are fucking dead at the end of the book yeah now this is just kind of like a weird little aside but again this this doesn't have like any of the real actual connections with the greater discworld series mm-hmm. like the is this are we assuming that this is set like a few hundred years in the past of all the stuff we've read before i I believe the official timeline is a hundred years in the past well see that's wild because xeno and ibid are here and they were in um pyramids they were in pyramids they They were like yeah 
at, at least some of the the philosophers we see in a Phoebe are there, though. Yeah, because in Eric was like, we go into the past to the Discworld. Yeah, yeah, we went back Trojan to the Trojan War, War nonsense. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're and it kind of like. There's references to conflicts between Ephebe and Sort in here, but it's just kind of more like, a, oh yeah, they're they're always fighting with each other, or whatever. It's they're just a, always fighting a yeah. regional disagreement. Yeah, it's like local. Yeah, rivalry. those are just wars. That's just business. You know, this is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it really did like even if this is set in modern, well, I use modern I mean, times as current the the current chronology. I don't know if it's really a prequel to anything. It's just, uh, yeah. Like, there's a long thing about steam engines and the like of them. Just that one specific mechanism with the copper ball. That, but like, steam hasn't really shown up in Discworld stuff yet. So, mm-hmm. it, it 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 being this weird, wild science fiction equivalent is still fits with the part with the part of the books we're at so far. Mm-hmm. It's really, it was really interesting too to like, um, kind of think about the like it's interesting because like this book doesn't only posit that this might be kind of a slightly earlier time than we're we're used to seeing in the Discworld. It's internal chronology stretches back for just thousands and thousands of years with the proposition of the idea that like gods rise and fall with civilizations, they're dependent on humans and there were entirely different gods on the landscape long, long before any of this was here. And long before the crowd of uh, tacky condo owners at Dunmanifestin uh, ever took up residence there. There's history to the land that goes beyond just what we currently know. And that's an idea that uh, I feel like uh, another guy, Neil Epic Divorce Man Gaiman, maybe kind of took a leaf from when he wrote American uh, Gods a bit. Um, similar uh, vibes. Uh, um, I, Epic Patreon Divorce. <laughs> did, when was American Gods? American Gods was 1998, if I remember correctly. So it was about six years after this. There's no guarantee that they weren't working on things at the same time or trading ideas. So I'm not going to say, like, Neil ripped things off from Terry because they were friends. I think it was more just, like, I feel like they definitely had conversations about this kind of thing, and they were both kind of thinking in that headspace similarly. So we went from small gods to American gods. Bad, bad transition, honestly. Bad, bad, uh, bad switch. We used to have I, small gods, American gods, and Bob Hope. Now we have no gods, no gods, and no hope. I, I mean, a lot of the ideas in this are are show up in their own ways, even in the Sandman stuff. So, like, Gaiman yeah. has been playing with these ideas for a while too. Oh, for mm-hmm. sure. But uh, that'll I'll have to save that for my other podcast, uh, Sand Job, a full read through of the entire uh, Sandman comic book series. Um, what are we going to get, Sand Woman? Thank you. <laughs> they do. Oh, good for them. <laughs> um, not Morpheus though. But, Morpheus is like the ultimate sad bro. Anyways, uh, so, so I think we all really liked the book then. Yes, yeah. yes. I, I was going into it worried that I wouldn't like it as much as I used to. And uh, that fear was unfounded because I did like it as much as I used to. It's, it's great. It still reads great today. 
Fucking loved it. Yeah, I, I was really impressed with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it aged better than a lot of things because it it well it, it deals mostly in universal themes anyways. It's not mm. there's there's very little Britain in this, so um yeah. hmm. it works a bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- there's a few things like you know what the hell's a draught excluder or whatever, but you know <laughs> I I find that I. I have thoughts on that, mostly because I feel like that's maybe one of the book's biggest weaknesses, is that its approach to religion is very much the approach of a, a white guy from England. Um, yeah. You can't be Tara Pratt writing this book and not, like, be thinking about the Church of England and Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the thing. It's like, I, mm-hmm. I should probably draw a, a line of demarcation there. It's not, it's not, there's not a lot of Britain in it, in like, there's not a lot of, like, weird britishisms beyond you know the occasional choice of vocabulary it's not it's not ankmore pork it's not it's not satirizing things in quite the same way except when we're joking around with the philosophers yeah mm-hmm. no that that's definitely true it's not trying to do a haha look at this foreign country that's so well okay at times it you, leans into you that and you're like the ancient greeks hmm. it's okay they yeah. can't fight back <laughs> yeah. And yeah at yeah. times it's so this is actually something what exactly where is om and what is it supposed to be because i think it's, it's generally a we can we can probably put it as the circle c in the disc world is kind of the mediterranean yeah. and it's kind of we know it's close to Ephib, which is Greece, and Sort, which is Turkey, and Jelly Baby, which is Egypt. All of these are kind of, of course. Yeah. But, uh, it's kind of, I think it's, I think it's meant to be kind of like the Holy Land, like kind of I, in that general region. Like if, I say uh, this just to say that like, not 80% of the time, it feels like it's satirizing Christianity and Christian-associated religions and their approach to things. Mm. And then every once in a while, 20%, there's just a little bit more where it'll either be like, and this is how all religions are, or it'll be like, and that sure is how it works here in the Middle East where we do things that are making jokes like you would find in Aladdin. And they're rare, which keeps the book from being bad, but there's a couple of them. Yeah, there's, there's a couple yeah. of really bad ones. Yeah. There's, there's some really bad ones. You can tell, like, especially the other part of the group, got, you can tell he's kind of got his his usual, like, axe to grind with the concept of religion. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of the book, he's refreshingly, like, you know, it he's, seems very much sitting- like, especially he's thinking of, like, you know, Catholicism, you know, because yeah. you know, they have a reformation. They have yeah. a, you know, cut me own hand off as selling indulgences, like... Yeah, this. Okay, I really, really do kind of wish that like any of us had any wider religious background. This because I do, I do now just earnestly wonder how would this have gone down with somebody who didn't grow up in in any kind of Christian related. Yeah, good question. I, I mean, like somebody I've... who grew up with entirely different structure, and maybe there, maybe some of these points kind of resonate on a more basic universal level. I do think there are also yeah. points of the book that are definitely like, hey, fellow Christians, shit sucks, right? It, it's um, bad to have an inquisition. Like, that's bad yeah. to have. Don't do it. If yeah. You, 
Listeners, if you grew up in a faith other than Christianity and you read this book and you have thoughts on it, uh, again, feel free to email us, discpod at, or no, it's disc at hypnovire.us. Um, yeah. We would love to hear from I you. Know we we all... don't... Oh, sorry. Sorry. I, I know that we don't usually get a huge number of letters and the like, but if we do actually get a significant number of these, it might be worth sitting down for like 10, 20 minutes and just oh. like reading some of them and just getting some bonus content let's say yeah. oh, i will that would absolutely so cool. do that mm-hmm. yeah because i mean it, yes it, this is very clearly meant to be like medieval christianity yeah. like there's and you know it's it's nice that you could say that pratchett was actually in his lane for most of that mm-hmm. uh, but you know there it, it spends more of its time going okay how did it get like this instead of just yeah. saying this is bad that's that's really the that's really the strongest thing I'd say is it takes the uh, here's medieval Christianity and here's the horrors of it and let's dive into it and ties that really heavily into what I think Pratchett's best at which is let's look at the people involved how did these people end up like that how does a person become something horrific and like mm. that's a, that's just a really really great thing to do in a book to take something horrifying like a horrifying structure of religion and then boil it down to the people inside of it and see how does a person become this or how does a person escape it mm-hmm. and it works really really well uh, and i think the that's past- what really makes the book work even with the occasional uh religion bad vibes or the i know everything about religion vibes which are rare they're much more rare than in other books Mm -hmm. i should say very rare i'd say there's the passage early on where they're describing the inquisitor's break room and just basically boiling down that it looks like every boring office that you've ever seen in any sitcom ever yeah Mm -hmm. and just sort of the point that vorbis just adored the fact that you don't need to find a bunch of just terrifying psychopaths to do all your torture work you can just get a perfectly normal family man and make him do it yeah it's mm-hmm. about the banality of evil it's you know the folks who come in every day to you know punch the clock at raytheon or whatever right like you know mm-hmm. perfectly normal folks that's sad at the fact that they have a you know horrifying job that makes everything worse yeah yeah god like that's that's the other half of my upbringing because both my parents worked in the government for the bad part of the government and it's just like Mm -hmm. oh great but yeah yeah, like the thesis of Discworld pretty much I won't say entirely from jump but like very early on is established as like I think I think he uh the man himself put it in a in a interview later that it's about the worst thing in the world is people treating other people as things Mm -hmm. uh and this book really really does a good job of like explaining kind of, and not justifying not apologizing but kind of just dissecting how that can happen uh and how that can accrue over time to form a society where it just isn't questioned anymore where it's just regarded as the status quo as normal mm-hmm. And I guess reading this as a teenager really kind of uh, woke my shit up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to that it's, kind of thing. Let's let's talk about Vorbis for a bit on that mm. note. 
getting uh, into kind of the bad guy and the religion at the center of this. Because mm-hmm. the central theme of the book is that no one worships Om anymore. No one believes in Om as a religious figure. They just believe in the structure of the religion and the Inquisition and all of that, which is mm-hmm. called the Quisition, which is a great gag. Uh, mm-hmm. It's well, not the Inquisition. Specifically because it means there are Inquisitors and Exquisitors. Yeah. So they're just and I, the quiz. I love that joke. That's such a good joke. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I really liked Vorbis as a villain. He's probably my favorite villain so far we've had in a Pratchett book. What did y'all yeah. think? Oh, admittedly, we haven't had that many villains so far. Yeah. A lot of the time so far, like, the, yeah. the villain has been, like, some inexorable ticking clock or, like, force of nature or whatever. Or, yeah. you know, the consequences of... Or, or, like, the fucking Dungeon Dimensions or something like that, where it's this formless evil. Like, this is one of the few where, like, the villain is, like, a specific bad guy you can point to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, no Dungeon Dimensions shit in this one. How about oh, that? Yeah. There's yeah. the There's very sort of sideways mention of the the temple that in the desert that's long abandoned it kind of has a few things that feel a little bit bell shamroth but the fact that nobody brings any attention to this is also kind of part of the point mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Uh, yeah i thought like similar to how this book is very much pyramids 2.0 uh vorbis is definitely dios 2.0 and i think yeah. he's so much of an improvement like a mm-hmm. wild Absolutely. improvement really uh just because like the whole book is kind of spent like peeling this guy like an orange to try to figure out like what the hell is going on inside yeah. of his head. Mm-hmm. And you get to the middle and it's just like, oh, there's like, like literally the book says like, there's like nothing going on. His head is, his mind is like a steel ball. Yeah. He's not open to any other outside ideas. Uh, yeah, it's a yeah. ball bearing in there. It's he's just a, him. Yeah, he, he's a perfect solipsist, which is wild. Yeah. Um, See, he had the plan. He had the resin bowling ball cast before he died. Oh, my God, you're right. Oh, smart. <laughs> Shit. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's also, uh, this is, this is getting, this is part of why I brought up the stuff at the beginning. Honestly, he was really familiar. <laughs> this is, this is a guy I have seen before. This is a guy I have known. I knew people like this. This is a guy like my aunt. Uh, genuinely just someone who is so convinced of their own faith and so convinced that what they are doing is right that they talk every single person around them in circles in order to force them to as the book says become more like them you have two options you either conform with me or i find a way to murder you not not necessarily kill you but just Get you exiled, get you ruined, make your life miserable. And I'm yeah. going to do it not because I hate you, but because I am convinced that I am right. I am convinced right. that I understand things and that I can make like uh, what I do doesn't matter because I'm right. So I can do it. It's it's it t- intense narcissism, but mm-hmm. narcissism filtered through faith in a way that makes it even worse. Narcissism yeah, like- that he has misidentified as faith. Yeah. Right. I yeah, can't have you exist it. in this world where I know these things to be true. I cannot accept any sort of uh, contrary opinion to that. Yeah, like mm-hmm. that was his, 
that was his big epiphany at the end, is like, oh, I wasn't hearing the voice of God this whole time. Those were just my own thoughts. Shit. Yeah. Fuck. Well, I mean, yeah. that's the thing, is like, with people like this, the, the dream, I mean, I if you've... The dream with someone like this, especially someone who is abusive like this, is that eventually they will realize, they will see the injustice of their own actions, that you will be able to find justice in some greater thing looking down on them and saying, no, you were wrong this whole time. And that's what happens in the end to him. It's very cathartic. It's mm-hmm. not but something also, I'm sure. Yeah. It only happens after he dies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. He seems like, very confused on that, and to be fair, most people don't expect to, their lives to end by ballistic turtle turtle at the exact moment of their triumph. Yeah, yeah. I gotta wonder if that's if that was the the reasoning behind the curious line of like, oh yeah, we should we should uh put together some new commandments. What's your first commandment? What about don't kill people? That's a pretty good one. And then Bruce is like. Mm, I don't I don't know about that. I don't know about going that far here. I. I Speaking of foreshadowing from way earlier in, in this episode, there was the comment early in when the turtle cult is discussing how they're going to get rid of Vorbis. Like, no, no, we have to kill him in front of the main temple. That way everyone will believe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so much good foreshadowing with it. The thing at the very beginning where it's like, but you see, someday a turtle will learn to fly. Just yeah. like, mm, mm, will it? Will it? Uh, mm, I wonder if that's all known laws of aviation. Oh god! <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like, there's that. There's the the uh, whole all of the like the the fact that he carries Vorbis through the desert at the beginning, and then the mirroring of that at the very end. The the whole way that his memory is used over and over as an interesting plot point, it fits together really well. Mm-hmm. It's good. This book it's is good. good. It's yeah. good book. Like, yeah, I got to the end here, and I'm just oh, that I felt like I read a novel. Like, yeah, that's not a feeling I've gotten from these books before. Like, it was good. You know, yeah. The, even mm-hmm. like the repeated running gags. Like every time someone sees Ohm, it's like a uh, tortoise. There's good eating on those. Yeah, they it was really a good joke because it was a bit menacing. What? Yeah. What? One of my. I, I had a bunch of candidates for best joke of the book on this, but the fact that one of the first things Om says in the desert is he kind of gestures towards Vorpus and go, goes, eh, there's good eat. Oh, sorry, no, he's, when they're talking about the lion, yeah. he goes, yeah. eh, you know, there's good eating on those things. Yeah, a little stringy, but... <laughs> mm-hmm. This book does a lot of things that are, like, you know, better, more realized rest of things from earlier books. Like, we have a character doing the thing where he invents electric lights again, which you remember yeah. Rinsley was trying to do back in, like... The color of magic, but here it actually makes sense. It makes sense within the framework of the story. Yeah, you'll never find enough cats. God, I have so <laughs> many fucking post-it notes in this book that it's kind of made the whole post-it note system a little bit uh, unwieldy. Yeah, uh, the book is just twice as thick as it was. Okay, you laugh, but I'm gonna send you a photo after this, and it's it's like stuffed. I was making notes all the time because so I was like, oh yes, this is this is huge brain, galaxy brain observation. Oh yes, and like half of my notes are like. Haha, ha, this is this is an important point and I'm like, well, thanks a lot, Past Iris. Great work. <laughs> what did y'all think of uh what did y'all think of Ohm, by the way? We've danced a lot around the topic of uh the deity himself, but uh how did you feel about him in the story? I found him kind of one note, but at the same time I think he worked mostly as a counterpart to uh Brutha in this book. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I that's, that's kind of the job of a god, I, right? Is to be one note. You know. Yeah, that's yeah. sort of the thing. And he he has to he does have to figure out how to start acting against type. Um. Oh yeah, I just want just because I'm reminded of it as we go through here. One of the few things that he does for somebody else when he goes out to the library and he's doing geometry. Yeah. Just as a way to try to get attention to go, hey, I'm more than just a normal little turtle. Pratchett brings it up a couple of separate times, but he's making reference to a computing device called a turtle, yeah. which is used mostly in vector graphics. That oh. you give it instructions almost almost exactly like how Brutha describes going through the labyrinth. Yeah. Of like, turn 45 degrees to the left, take 12 steps, turn 70 degrees to the right. Take twelve steps. Yeah, it, it's that's a reference a to the. Deep nerd it's a reference wow. to the the logo programming language from like the sixties. Like if you're like taking a programming class in the sixties, like especially you know they would sit you in front of your BBC micro or whatever, and they would teach you how to write programs with logo, where you would drive a little turtle around and draw shapes. Yeah, I mean that was the notable thing was that you there were you could get little robot turtles who would then follow these instructions, including pen up, pen down, and you could draw things with the turtle. Yeah. Holy shit! I had no idea. I totally learned something about this book today. That's so cool. So that. So again, that's just how deeply, mu- how much of a nerd Cratchit was that he made that joke three different times over the course of the book and used mm-hmm. it as a plot device at one. God, that's great. He was a huge dork. This is known. I did find. Uh, I think what's my favorite joke in the book, by the way, it's on page two fifty nine in our. Uh, Harper Fiction paperback, if you're reading along. Metaphorically accurate, Saddam, but I never did thundering. Demarcation, see? Bloody I've got a big hammer, blind Io up on Knob Hill does all the thundering. I thought you said there were hundreds of thunder gods, said brother. Yeah, and he's all of them. Rationalization. A couple of tribes join up, they both got thunder gods, right? And how the gods kind of run together. You know how amoebas split? Well, it's like that, only the other way. I still don't see how one god can be a hundred thunder gods. They all look different. Uh, false noses. What? And different voices. I happen to know Io's got 70 different hammers. Not common knowledge, that. And it's just the same with mother goddesses. There's only one of them. She just got a lot of wigs, and of course it's amazing what you could do with a padded bra. <laughs> Which is, like, that's, that's a plot point that uh, does not come up literally, I think, ever again in Discworld that, like, oh yeah, they're Part of the gods' task is, like, to, like, disguise themselves as, like, local regional variants. Which, but that is buck-fucking-wild. That, that's that, that really kind of happened, right? Like, you know, oh, yeah, like, no, Ares and Mars are the same guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely, it absolutely happened, you know, in, you know, actual religions. But... It also helps give an explanation for how the fuck there is objectively a bunch of gods hiding hiding out in the center of the world when there's like a trillion different religions mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. disc. Same guys, different uh, different haircut. That and also um, the I had a I, I also marked down my quip of the book, which is less of a joke but more just something that like I've had stuck in my head for so long that I forgot that it was from this book, which was uh, it was just kind of story about the origin of Ohm's religion, uh, where he tells a sheep herd where to find a lost sheep, and things kind of grow from there. Uh, only a mile away from the shepherd and his flock was a goat herd and his herd. The merest accident of microgeography had meant that the first man to hear the voice of Ohm, and who give Ohm his view of humans, was a shepherd and not a goat herd. 
They have quite different ways of looking at the world, and the whole of history might have been different, for sheep are stupid and have to be driven, but goats are intelligent and need to be led. Yeah, that puts a lot of fucking Christian sheep imagery into perspective, don't it? <laughs> I, I don't know if it's true. I'm curious if, it, if it's actually true. I'm sorry. Um, uh, it's a good bit, though. It's a great bit, though. Like, I've been thinking about that line for years, and I forgot that it was from this book. Just, like, the idea of, like, okay, are you building, are you building a religion out of something that people would want to congregate around and to build a community around? Or are you just trying to scare them in line, you know? My, uh, There's another bit of foreshadowing in that same section because it talks about how the sheepherd was going, spending days searching for one lost sheep even though he had a flock of a thousand because he has a flock of a thousand because he'll go out and spend days looking for the one. Then, you know, way back in the back end of the book when the gods are asking, um, why, the, why are you bothering with this one dude? You've got thousands now. He goes... Yes, but I think to have thousands, I gotta fight for this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh it's... yeah. Ah. Oh man. So we learned a lesson from that shepherd. That's great. The book ties in on itself a lot, which works because it's very self-contained as well. And also, it works because he just steals whole, just steals from Christianity like completely. Like. Oh yeah. Brutha is a Jesus figure is not really subtle at all. Mm-hmm. No, that's at all. just text. Yeah, it's just yeah. text. He gets one, crucified one, at the end of the book. What more do you want? Yeah, one, one good way to make a bunch <laughs> of religious metaphors is just to steal from the Bible wholeheartedly. Which, incidentally, my absolute favorite joke in the book was uh, talking about the other places that uh, Om has, uh, the, the nation has conquered. Uh, uh, we like to remember them uh, the the tyrant, the ruler of Ephebe, who's not as evil as Vorbis is by a long shot. We like to remember them as they were before you sent them your letters that put the minds of men in chains. That set the feet of men on the right road, said Vorbis. Chain letters, said the tyrant. The chain letter to the Ephebians. Forget yeah. your gods. Yes. Be subjugated. Learn to fear. Do not break the chain. The last people who did woke up one morning to find 50,000 armed men on their lawn. <laughs> it was God, I forgot bit. about that one. That's so good. It's such a good joke because the chain I, letter joke, but also letter to the Ephebians being like, yeah, exactly. exactly I didn't, I didn't the Bible pick works. that up when I was reading oh, it. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh. It killed me. Uh, just the specific way you were pronouncing it, the chain letters of the Ephebians, and to go, oh, suddenly I hear a thousand sermons in the back of yep. my head. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. Oh. Uh. It was it was a funny book. Also had, like... The, uh, Pratchett's good at making books that have moments that make you go, oh, fuck yeah, that's cool, in a way that, like, you don't really expect to. And doing a scene where you get to rip off the entire, like trial where they made oh it was Galileo right Galileo where they made Galileo like recant about the world being round or whatever or or going around the sun I don't remember Galileo's final words were like and yet it moves and that's why everyone says the turtle moves because no one's one's angry about the turtle for moving they're angry that that people are saying the turtle is yeah Mm -hmm. 
but it's more fun to tie into the reference and yeah, uh absolutely. doing what we'll do that exact same scene just in the exact same way except this time he shows up and he's just like yeah sure all right it's flat yeah i don't care uh sure whatever you say i'll go along with it i'm here to go with the times thanks for coming bye and as he walks out the door throwing something at them and being like and yet it was just like it's a good moment it was it's a really great good. moment just like fu- throws his fucking lantern and runs Mm-hmm. Actually, hitting somebody is really impressive for a blind man. Yeah. <sighs> I can't. I, you think he threw that lantern around a lot? Oh, it was a million to one shot. I was literally okay, just mind. about to say. <laughs> uh, God, the uh, the little the side little joke of Ohm coming up with his plan to hide to hijack an eagle and saying, you know, with any luck, it's a million to one shot. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. just because, and it's they, great because they know that you they know that you've been conditioned by the last thirteen books to go ah a million and one. Yeah. But that, it just might work. That means it has to happen. <laughs> uh, also, as a, as a tiny aside. Eagles don't have dangly bits. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, I was uh... going to say that that really was a miracle by any standard you measure it as, because uh, birds don't really have external genitalia unless they're within the actual. You know, it's it doesn't work like that at all, uh, <laughs> and you know, it's I. That's Tell fine. us, Iris. How do you know so much about the our, our beloved, beloved bird? You're trying very hard not to cut it. No, I hit a I hit a wall. Here. I my the problem is that my my train of thought didn't derail at all. I got to the station and I was like, I'm. I'm not going to tell them that I've done the research and that there just is no plausible way to make bird genitalia into horny cartoon dicks and shit. <laughs> it's just not going to work. A cloaca, yeah. maybe. But, like, if we're talking the other end, like, it's it's just a no-go. This uh, is your daily reminder that this podcast yeah. is hosted by a bunch of furries. Uh, I'm sorry. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm a professional it. furry pornographer. I'm scum. Oh my You're wonderful. Bird. I, I <laughs> mean, yeah. let, let's just be honest. Let's be honest here. This does mean that Terry Pratchett was sitting here imagining the scene in his head and thinking about an eagle with just like a, it's, I, with its dick big just flopping dick around. Nutsel? Yeah. <laughs> just, I like, gotta like, say. There's probably but, balls under there. Which, and just sort of like slapping against um, which, over and over again. Which was one of my was one of my favorite jokes in the book, where you know, he does the thing where he does the the phony Latin or whatever is like carpe testiculum, hearts and minds or whatever. Which um, the word there is testiculum, but, but it translates mm-hmm. it as when you have their full attention in your grip, their hearts and minds will follow. Yeah, that's what testiculum yeah. means. <laughs> Oh uh, God, that's great. But yeah. uh, what? Moving on from the jokes into really sad stuff. No, nah, I'm kidding. But I do kind of want to talk about what the book meant to me personally. Mm-hmm. No, all. fire away. Uh, so I first read this book probably when I was a teenager, like 14 or 15. Um, and I have trouble relating to a lot of stories about people getting out of religion people most of the people i know who are atheists uh with some exceptions iris included fell out of it nor the normal way eventually when you're a teenager you go oh dang hey the church is really fucked up huh i i guess i'll stop this probably or just stop caring we've never been that into it anyway so like 
whatever. It's a pretty common thing. I did not. I believed really, really hard. Um, And one of the things that really keeps you in a religion like that, I found, is the fear of what would happen if you didn't have it. There is an idea of, okay, if you don't have religion, then what do you believe in? Who keeps you from being a horrible murderer that you know you are? When you convince someone that they're bound for hell because they're a sinful monster, you also convince them, hey, if you don't have Christian morals guiding you, you'll be a sinful monster who is a horrible person to everyone around you. There's nothing stopping you from going out and murdering someone. That's not how it works, but it's how you believe it works. Um, This was very hard to deal with uh, as a kid. It was something I struggled with a lot. The idea that I couldn't really reconcile my faith with the fact that I couldn't get rid of this thing. Because if it did, I was floating in the world with nothing to hold on to. And I knew I was a horrible monster because I had been told so my whole life. But at the same time, I couldn't stay with it because it was evil. It, It kind of was the version I was in was, at least. Um, and one of the reasons I really love Terry Pratchett, and it means so much to me, is one of the big things in this book is watching Brutha go through that. Watching him realize that he cannot believe in the religion he grew up with, because it's evil, really fundamentally evil. He saw Vorbis, but also he can't just jump onto something else, because Om's not great. Om sucks in this book. He's such a weird bastard the entire book. So what does he do? Uh, The whole thing of him walking across the desert is just this long exercise in him going, I don't have anything left to believe in except myself, I guess. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to keep going because I have to believe in something. And I guess for now, that's just me. I'm just going to keep trying because... What else is there to do? That hit like a truck as a kid. The idea that maybe I could find morals, I could find something to stand on, not through religion or through something else, but just through sheer almost force of will, refusing to give up, refusing to compromise, and just sticking with it. That really, really hit me. This would also be explored over and over again in Terry Pratchett's work in every single other book, but mostly through Vimes. And it's why I love Vimes so much. And uh, that's part of what this whole book meant to me and why I cried so hard that I couldn't read the book because I had to stop because there were so many tears in my eyes. Because I remembered myself when I was a teenager and was like, oh, this book helped me realize that there was a world outside of my own and that I could escape and that escaping didn't mean the end of the world. Sorry to go off. That's just. Oh, thank you, June. It was really good. Thank you for sharing that. I'm tearing up a lot myself. Shit. It was gorgeous. Uh, Yeah. I, you know, I I vibe with you there. Like that, that really, you very elegantly put it where it's really like, do I stick with the thing that I know is bad and is, you know, killing me or do mm-hmm. I, cause, the, or is, is there any, or do I just leave? Like the way, the way I remember it being put at the multiple Jesus camps that I went to when I was a teen is they would call, uh, not stopping going to church and stuff. They would call it falling away from the faith. Like, mm-hmm. 
you're dropping off of a precipice or something. And then after people fall away, it's like they, they, they would be talked about in the past tense. Like they didn't exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, and that's so completely fucked in retrospect. (laughs) Yeah. That's so fucking bananas. But like at the time it was like, I don't want to fall away. I'm a bad person already. I'm, I'm an inch away from losing everything. I'm, I'm molecules away from a one-way ticket to hell. Yeah. And like, you know, that, that kind of shit, it's not sustainable. It's not, it's no way to live. It, it it's, kills it's you. It's not a healthy it mindset. It kills you. And it's something you really kind of see in this book. Like in the, this whole section is just like, like carrying Vorbis through the desert is a bad decision. It's the worst decision in a lot of ways. Om is right to be like, hey, don't fucking do this. And honestly, under any sense of morality, yeah, yeah, he was probably right to kill him there. That that would have been the right thing to do. Hmm. But it's not really about it? like, what's the right thing to do there? It's about him going, I need something to stand on here. I need some ground that I can hold on to as everything I've believed falls away. And the only thing I can believe in is my ability to care for someone who doesn't deserve it. So I'm going to do that. I guess I'm going to do that, even though it's going to kill me. That that means something to me. Mm-hmm. Huh. But also the book was really funny. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I will say, lastly, that coming back at the very end in the desert when Ruta finally dies and just going... Well, I hate you. You are a murderer. Finding Vorbis in the desert, having sat there for infinity in his time in hell, essentially, of his own creation, and being like, you were a murderer, you were the worst person to ever exist, and I despise you. Uh, And you turned other people into yourself, and that's the worst thing you did. But I'm still me. And then he does it again picks him up to help him it's just like oh i really like the main character of this book because i really liked almost all of the asides of you know some somebody dies and they go to the desert mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah like you get the you get the captain who yeah he's just yeah, out the, his boat the, with his crew again yeah the, the the ship was one of the two or three things that i just vividly remembered oh i, I just wanted to say i want to uh have any of you, uh, so there's another podcast I really enjoy called Kill James Bond, where they're listening to every single James Bond. They're watching every single James Bond movie. Uh, yeah. And they give they give awards to different characters to do things. Like they give uh, the Goodnight Cross to the best, uh, uh, to the best supporting character who didn't need to do what they did, but they, they, they sure tried. And then what's the other one? The Kronstein, the Kronstein Rosette. For, Rosette. Yeah, for Rosette. the villain who went above and beyond the call of duty, really, really didn't need to go that far trying to kill James Bond or whatever, but sure, that random henchman sure did. And I just want to give, I want to give an award for thing I'd most like to have its own book about to that ship captain. Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear about He's... them being like, Hey, Valhalla seems better than this shit. Let's go there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really wanted to show up in some other phase afterlife and enjoy themselves. Yeah. yeah. They were great. It's it's so this is going to be a wild tangent, but like it's so rare to see in fiction 
eternity faced with anything other than like total bug fuck fear and like mm-hmm. like just ultimate nihilism it's it's really nice to see like i guess like facing an afterlife that exists and being like yeah well I'm excited. Let's let's figure out where we're going next. Where are we dropping, boys? Let's go. Uh, let's yeah. go ride um, around in our cool boat with my friends forever. Yeah, that's Road trip, it, baby. Almost everyone went. Everyone else kept having the realization that the worst had already happened, and that was a much bigger relief than they thought it would be. Yeah, that's that's really comforting. the The yeah. only other thing that like the thing I can most compare it to actually is an anime that I watched recently. <laughs> um, I watched the anime uh, Bakano recently, which oh. minor spoilers, but it's it's a kind of set in an alternate version of the 1930s, and it deals with a lot of like uh, gang, like like mafia warfare. Except some of the mafia uh, are immortal due to uh, magic shenanigans. But there's a moment near the end of the series where. A bunch of the immortal characters are all just who are all like on the same side are all just kind of like hanging out and like setting up a gigantic, extremely tedious uh, pattern of dominoes to push over uh, the, the size of the floor of a ballroom. And, you know, they're like they're doing this. and They're like drinking and listening to music and having a chill time. And like every there's this sense of like everyone's just like really psyched to just be there and get to and they get to hang out with each other for forever for the rest of time and that's like i don't know i've never seen i've never seen anything that shows an afterlife or a, a concept of eternity in a like a really comforting light like that i don't know like you don't get that from like I never got that from like the Catholic Church. Like, oh you, yeah, like, oh, not. good people go heaven, but like, heaven always seemed like this very like anodyne place where it was very like kind of. Uh, the musician Tom Vec once described in a song that heaven was a hot place and that it's like a a very stifling sort of environment where all you can really do is worship the. Uh, the power structure at the center of it. And that's that's an idea that I feel has really been kind of forged over time within the the idea of how the church operates. And like mm-hmm. the idea of like of it as like an exhale and as a excitement to see what comes next. I don't know. It's it's something that I I maybe first kind of came into contact with through Discworld books. Yeah. And it's just really sweet to kind of come across it again. I think I don't know. 1770, 76, yeah, one John Boyce thing about... Yeah, that too, like, oh my god. We all live forever, like, it's just us, like, might as well enjoy it, like, I don't know, some people play one game of football forever, some people, like, okay, I'm going to find every person and ask them what they're all about and what they're doing, you know, I'm gonna go work at Burger King and, like, hand money away, who fucking cares, it's the future, it's post-scarcity, we can do whatever we want. Uh, yeah, seems a lot more fun than living on a cloud and praising God forever, you know. Mm. Yeah, just having time and God, being able yeah. to decide for yourself where it's next. I don't uh, know. That's that's uh, some heavy shit. Yeah, I wish <laughs> we I said had this episode time. was that would be nice. Wow, we said this uh, episode was gonna get heavy, and wow, it got heavy. Holy uh, shit! Yeah. I mean uh, that. I I I I feel like 
part of what matters at this episode. Like, uh, this book is so specific in what it's pointed at and what it tries to do in a way that really no other Pratchett book has been so far, in my opinion. I felt like it was worth just, like, I don't know. It's good. It's heavy, but it's good. Oh, yeah. Hmm. It's a, it's more personal than any book he ever wrote before or after. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I I should have done this before the stream. I should have looked into, like, what his personal history with Christianity is. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Also, like, you can't just, like, assume that every book is about the person. Yeah. But also, you know, you, you kind of... Even as an author, even indirectly, you write from inspirations and stuff that you've come into contact with in real life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. So was there was there anything else about the book we wanted to talk about, or do we want to go to the ranking? I, I had two things I wanted to mention before we uh, yeah, go to the rankings. Uh, one of them okay. was, uh, if you've heard of the Og Vorbis, you know, free and open source audio encoding that Belina mentioned earlier, Vorbis is the Vorbis part is in fact named after the guy in this book. The Og part is not. That's based on an old video game. It was not named after Danny Og. Why? Why did they name the their their okay. thing after the bad guy from this book? Why not like no explanation any for that is ever guy? given. Like I will point out that like Og and Vorbis are two very different projects. Vorbis is the encro- is the encoding mechanic, and Og is the rapper. So. The fact that Aug is based off of some weird video game weirdness, and to be fair, Augging was basically sending suicide ships against other players. Yeah, to end their so I don't know what that has to do with file formats either. The zip.org guys I, are weird. Like Fosters yeah. always name things weird things. I could talk for ages about that specific pattern, but it's not unusual. VLC, Grace. meanwhile, yeah. If no, 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 you can continue. Yeah, VLC names this really have Discworld characters much more consistently, but that's either here nor there. I was going to say, did they name it after Vorbis because he gives people a lot of flack? Hey, flack wasn't a thing yet. (laughs) Vorbis was coded because there was there was the threat that MP. That MP3s were going to have a licensing fee attached to them, and that's why Vorbis was developed. MP3s were encoded by patents for a long time. Wow. Grace, if you can ever come up with a uh, reason that Discworld is heavily related to file formats, a, a Discworld-adjacent piece of media that is specifically about technology in that way, we'll do a bonus we'll episode call it on Foss it. Covers. Yeah, um, that, like, not being facetious, that would make for a great bonus episode. Like, if nothing because... else, we gotta talk about the fucking Discworld mud and, like, Sir Terry's Oblivion mod. Oh, God. Yes! At some point. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. I'm excited Discworld- to someday do those. Discworld Tech Corner. Alright. That's so great. Okay. Also, second thing, much less dorky or whatever, but like okay, at the start of the book we're like So throughout the book, Ohm talks to brother through, you know, beaming thoughts into his brain, basically. And as soon as I heard I read that I fucking had to sit down and write, you know, it's me, boy, I'm the great god Ohm, speaking to you inside your brain. Listen to me, boy, leave the city, we don't need her. Come with me, praise my name, we'll have turtle times at sea. I need you, boy, your belief is very important. So uh, the best part about this is that, like, we've been recording this entire fucking episode, and I've been... S- I've had the official DiscPod uh, social media open while we've been recording, and I'm on 
Mastodon seeing your post the top of the dash <laughs> in the Evangelion font. It's me, boy, PlayStation 5, speaking to you inside your mind. <laughs> I've been thinking about it all recording session. Oh, my fucking God. That is funny as hell. We have successfully managed to date exactly when this podcast was recorded. Uh, I will, this, I will no, link no, like no, a we few months old at this day, point. everybody. Uh, I'm going to link the video in the show notes. Uh, I cannot wait for people to look, click on the episode and go, why is that linked in the show notes? What? It's real because oh. I feel like it has a lot to say about, you know, the religions and the uh, no, no, no. society. It's advertising. It's, a, yes. it's clickbait. Yeah, that's it. They, get, they for, gotta listen to uh, an hour 13 to find out what the fuck we, we yeah. linked that for. It's uh. for our immense fan base of TikTok teens. Hi, TikTok teens. Hi, TikTok How's teens. How are you? We joke, but we love you. Yes. Uh, I don't understand you, but I love you. So, I wanted to ask before we moved on, uh, what was y'all's least favorite parts about the book? What did you dislike? If you had anything. I, hmm... I think that it's a it's a typical Discworld problem. Uh, the middle was a little bit saggy. Like mm-hmm. the stuff in Ephib, maybe there could have been some bits cut out there a little bit. There was a lot of good like tone stuff though, like a lot of good mood stuff, like I, where the f- Brutha emerges from the labyrinth and it's just a really like cool, sweet summer evening. That was really nice, and mm-hmm. I don't know if I could cut that. Yeah, that's sort of the thing. Is like I loved that part, but it wasn't super important because every everything that they were doing in there was good for setting up mood and good for setting up part of Brutha's evolution. Mm-hmm. Like there were maybe some weird throwaway bits. Like okay, that that bit with Zactylos and and Urn or when they first show up is that an extended Sanford and Son bit? What when uh... there there are. Like they're arguing about like, oh, I sold, I sold up a, a saying and it didn't do anything for him. I gotta uh, wonder if this is a reference to like Only Fools and Horses or some other British sitcom that we're not like. Well, privy I mean, to I or look, something. Sanford and Son itself is based off of a British sitcom, but it clearly wasn't. It clearly couldn't have been that because that was about rag and bone men mm-hmm. as opposed to scrapyard. But like, it had that exact same kind of you big dummy approach to it. Mm. I, I realize it's not a unique thing, but something about that, that that was just this weird incongruous series of exchanges. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But like, and we're, go- we're going to ignore the obvious bits of, Christ, Terry, you didn't have to put the weird racist a- Asian stereotypes on the yeah, history monks. Yeah. Like, they, uh. they, they make it very clear that they're doing that, that he's, doing that entirely he's putting that affect on because he talks totally normally later yeah but you didn't need like to do they, that they mentioned really this guy didn't. has yellow skin just in case you didn't get that he's supposed to be asian from his name asian, and the fact yeah. that he's a he's a wise old monk who keeps bonsai mountains yeah he'll, it's he'll get better by thief of time but yeah uh... he later becomes like the best character but uh... oh yeah you know he, he rules everything where he wasn't Everything he did for the book was really good. It was just the one time he opened his mouth to actually say things that just absolutely sucked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That. Oh, and um the the bit at the end, the war on the beach was uh I like I like how this book stuck its ending. 
Uh, that bit could have maybe been, I guess, a little shorter. I don't know, or yeah, something. It felt. I into, it I, felt like a lost the a little bit of been. a yeah, a little bit of a trip before it found its footing again. But yeah, I I, really, I think that the whole point of that was that it was trying to establish that we can't just go back to business as usual. We yeah. need to handle things differently. Yes, it would have been very easy for Ohm to just smite the the invading navy, but that would have that wouldn't have solved anything. It would have just gone back to business as usual, and business as usual doesn't work. Right. I also really liked kind of the idea that like Ohm going back to the heavens and being like, "I'm thinking way too mortal now. I'm still thinking like a yeah. tortoise because mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I I don't think about these as just meaningless people who I don't care about," and like. Yeah. I really liked that bit, but at the same time, I feel like it just, that whole section, for as great as some of it was, like, brother dying, or well, not dying, but being totally not crucified, that scene was amazing mm-hmm. with him just being like, "Yeah, you're going to die, really good. I'm sorry, like, oh, just stunning moment, it just, mm-hmm. uh, there it, was a it lot kind of, of lets the it lets the air out of that climax a little bit. Yeah, that scene let the air out a bit. Also, there was a lot of just like, well, if you kill him, you're the same as him. Ooh, it's for my tastes. Just a bit like, I know we're trying to do something better, but like, maybe yeah. he should have died. <laughs> maybe it's a good thing. Um, and. <gasps> First commandment, uh, thou shalt not kill. Well, I don't know about it's that. It's okay to kill this guy, you know. I think it's good that I mean, this guy's dead. I mean, a lot of the point is, I, I, okay, it's also just riffing on, you know, the Ten Commandments. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's, very, it's very funny that they send, spend that time going, well, because, yeah, it, it, I mean, again, it's more about keeping Ohm out of people's daily lives itself. Mm-hmm. And being more of an education and rather than a stick. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm... I understand the point. I think I think that, yeah, like, much of, much of the battle at the beach could have been much shorter. And I kind of wonder if there was a better way to handle it other than um, just literally strong-arming the, all of the other gods, saying, Could just tell them to play nice. That's all you gotta do. Yeah. That is fair, but... As an academic counterpoint, uh, Ohm's scene where he basically hotline Miami's Corey Celeste and gets all oh. the gods on his side. <laughs> See, I loved that. That was great. That, that was, was so good. I, I really loved that. I'm the just going to kick the like, doors and start breaking well, shit. Hell well, yeah. Yeah, there's only one way to deal with this. I got to get them to care. And I've been mortal, so I know how to beat the shit out of people. Hell yeah. yeah like, like, grabbing them, like grabbing them by the hand and like twisting it behind their back until it, they say the line. It's almost a shame that Brutha came in at the end of the bar fight with the philosophers. Yeah. Because it would have it would have been very, very funny if what Alm did was something that he saw in the bar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was there were there was a lot of there was a lot of really good stuff there. I just I feel like there was a bit too much Well, we solved the church thing. Everything's solved now, it's gonna get better. Now, I I do want to point out that they give almost no details on what happened in those hundred years oh yeah no it definitely it definitely like that's kind of i think one of the strengths is seeing that yeah it took a hundred years and he's still doing it and the moment where he's just like i think i was happiest in the desert 
now mm. I have to do the work for basically the rest of my life is so good, especially because it's just like, we're going to be working on this forever. All right, let's yeah. do it. Mm-hmm. But at the same, just like ending up with just like, cool. All right. Uh, let's stop the war because everything's good now. It was just a bit. Yeah, that, I, I did appreciate that them bringing Vorbis, that bringing Vorbis's corpse didn't do anything. Yeah. They go, no, we, we still have to fight, man. Like, we'll talk later, but you have to have at least a little bit of war. Otherwise, it's not the real diplomacy. Yeah, you, you can't sue for peace when we haven't even had a war yet. Yeah, I liked that they, they we only got, like, little hints of what happened in those later hundred years. That was once good. We get to the I end liked of the book. that. Mm-hmm. That was uh. cool. I think, while these characters don't appear, I think there are oblique references to Omnia in later... Uh, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, Omnia yeah, yeah, is no, a That's uh, where uh, Visit the Infidel with Explanatory Pamphlets comes from. Uh, right. One of my alta- one of the best characters, Constable Visit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that's sort of it. It's just like Omnia is no longer really terrifying. They're just... Okay, they're kind of annoying, yeah. but you know, any evangelist is going to be at least a little annoying. <laughs> they're very polite, and that's the worst thing you can say about them. Okay, so if we're going to do the rankings on this, let's be perfectly honest. The entire fight is—is is this better or worse than Reaper? Yeah, Man? but we don't—we don't even have to like compete with the rest. I was of them. going to say, okay, is this better than the color of Matt? <laughs> no, no, um, no, uh... no. I would—I would throttle you if you weren't three time zones away. <laughs> I don't know. You have long arms. Um, I personally am going to say that it should get top of the list. Just uh, besides the personal residence, I feel like it's also just a really well put together book. I feel like it's a little more cohesive in a way that Reaper Man wasn't. And if somebody was like, I only want to read one Discworld book. I don't want to get too far into the series. I just want to read one. All other Discworld books, I don't care. I don't like fantasy. I don't like comedy. I don't like to laugh. I don't like British people. Uh, everything sucks. <laughs> Give me $200. Um, I would say you got to at least read Small Gods, though, right? That's the one. You got to read it. So I'm going to say for now. That's yeah, I know. I I have the absolute certainty that this this will still be in like the top third of the books when yeah. we're, by the time we're done. I I am I know full well things are going to surpass it later, but especially in what you just said, like if someone's only going to read one, this is like the best self-contained one. Period. Yeah, like there's there's others that are part of series and stuff, but this one. You literally, the only thing you need to know about Discworld with this one is it's flat and it's on the back of a turtle. Go! Uh, and that's that's like one of its biggest strengths as a which one is the best to start with sort of argument. But uh, yeah, there's there's not even like, there's, there's no fucking magic in this. Yeah. There's some, there's some miracle stuff, but only at the very end, really. Mm-hmm. And the, like, there's like, God dealings, but that's a different category than like yeah, that's wizard deal- shit. That's... I I deeply appreciate that the Sea Queen just completely forgets to actually kill the steamboat. God, yeah, she strikes, it, she strikes it with lightning and it speeds off into the distance, but they fucking survive. Yeah, she gets distracted by a bigger, juicier boat. Yeah, the one Vorbis is on. Ah, <laughs> which it should be noted, this podcast isn't about which is the best Discworld novel to start. Yeah, it's about which is the best. 
yeah, I mean, <coughs> it, it has advantages on that front, is what I'm admitting here. And to be honest, I would definitely give someone. I would if they even if they only asked for one, I'd hand them issues of copies of both this and Reaper Man at the same time, saying whichever one of these appeals to you more. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I desperately want to hear from folks that aren't Christian or weren't raised Christian. I want to know how this thing holds up to an outside observer. Yeah. Because yeah, My... the sure as shit isn't this. None of this is like universal religious experience. Yeah. It, it, it's very, very specific in what it's dealing with. My guess mm. is that it still holds up very well, but mostly as a critique of a certain type of religion. But especially because it ties it so heavily with not just religion, but the way that people get embedded in unhealthy power structures and such. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll put a note up on the social media today after we're done recording too, and be like, "Hey, if y'all wanna, y'all y'all read this, yeah, like, let us know." Hey, hi, hello. Yeah, very specifically, I, I, I would love to just hear more opinions on this. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, I will say my part. Not just because of, like, personal meaning and the fact that this book is one of the milestones on my getting out of a cult. I do have to put it above Reaper Man. I adore Reaper Man. I did two podcasts about Reaper Man, but this book is just a coherent novel in a way that none of the other books have been. Yeah, Yeah. no, I'm I'm not arguing, and you know how hard I went on Reaper Man last episode. Yeah, I was coming in here prepared to put Reaper Man at the top, but... I can't argue with the fact that, like, I think Reaperman resonated more with me personally, but I can't dispute that, again, I put this one down and thought, oh, this is a novel. This is, like, this is a novel and not just a series of cool set pieces or whatever. I'm willing to give this mm-hmm. one the top spot based on, on that basis. Yeah, I don't want to say alone, I, but, like... Mm-hmm. <sighs> the highs of Reaperman, though, are really high. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it's it's... Half of it is a pretty good Discworld book, and half of it is one of the best Discworld books ever. And, like, oh, man. Like, there, it's, like, I feel like Small Gods beat it, but it didn't beat it by much. You know? Yeah, yeah Condolences absolutely. to number two. And, uh, yeah, we're, st- we're still at the point where, I mean, these two are starting to form the tier of the good shit. I'm very oh, curious yeah. to see if any, when, if anything's going to beat this. I know something that's going to beat this, for me personally, but that book is like 10 books off at least, so. Yeah, yeah, Unseen Academicals is a pretty long way away, and we still no, have to that, get there. Uh, no, I, <laughs> uh, I mean, I am going to be the one loudly defending Unseen Academicals, but it's not as good as this. It's not as good one of these this. days, I'll know what these books are about. I look forward about. to getting reacquainted with it. Yeah, I've never read it. It's one of the few adult Discworld novels I haven't read, so I'm excited to uh, encounter it for the first time. Uh, Grace won't be the only one who hasn't read it yet. Uh, That'll be fun. Finally, I won't be alone in blundering into these books headfirst, blindfolded. Yeah. Well, I also I also haven't read any of the young adult ones either. So oh, wow. once we get to those too, I'll be uh, I'll be right there as- alongside you because uh. I pretty much started reading them when I was a teenager, and by that point, I was rapidly hurtling into high school, and people look at you weird if you head into the young books for teens section of the library, which is where I got these from. So I was like, I'll just read the adult ones and maybe get around to these ones with larger type and less pages later. But, uh, <laughs> not, later is now, baby. We're, we're being completionist with this shit. We're living in the future. 
Before we wrap up, did we have any mail or anything? Well, yes. We have a piece of mail actually in our mailbox uh, from Jace, pronouns they, it, she. Uh, fan mail for our Johnny and the Dead bonus episode. Go listen to that right now Ooh. if you haven't already. Uh, Jude is joined by friends Zoe and a third one, whose name is unpronounceable, uh, to discuss a book by Terry Pratchett that isn't Discworld related, but was based on a real-ass fucked-up thing that happened in England, and is a really, really good listen. Uh, please check that out. Uh, Jace writes, Hey, y'all. You mentioned skinheads, and the confusion over this kid, a wannabe Nazi or a wannabe punk, and I just think you might find it neat to know that in the post, in the post-Nazis ruining the world skinhead, there was also a secondary group called Sharps, that is formed to deal with Nazis in the scene in the only way one can, kicking their asses. Sharp standing for skinhead against racial prejudice. With love, Jace. Um, that does yeah, not surprise that's a, me. That's I... historically and especially in Europe. I know that's a thing where skinhead stuff didn't originate with neo-Nazi stuff. And... Yeah, we talked about that on the podcast, how it was like originally, it was actually originally a, a thing of like, unless I'm mistaken, uh, people copying styles and things. It was like a reggae thing, sort of, tied up in Jamaican immigration. It was a hmm. very interesting, uh, very much a music thing, though. And then it got brought back for Nazis. <laughs> Ugh. Oh, my God. Nazis. Probably because it's an easy haircut to get, because but, fascists have no yeah. sense of artistry. But that does not surprise me. One, like, one of the things that I definitely know about the punk scene in England is that it had a big Nazi problem, and it also had a very serious, we will beat the shit out of Nazis to deal with the Nazi problem. Uh, yeah. Movement. And it worked. It worked well. Mm-hmm. If you see a Nazi, beating the shit out of them makes them leave. It works. Try it. Hell yeah. Um, so there's a theme I'm noticing between this this fan mail and today's episode is that bald people are evil. <laughs> <laughs> Never trust a baldy. Actually, going back over something this episode, uh, bald people, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. We, we love you. You're wonderful. Uh, people yeah, who work at great. Raytheon, if you're listening to this, uh, quit your job. I'm sorry. Just yeah, quit your job. We don't love you if you work at Raytheon. Yeah. We would yeah. love you more if you quit Raytheon. Um, also on our social media feeds, we got a few comments from Zoe on previous episode. Every time I see Sorcery Solo on the ranking list, I get confused for a sec before I remember this isn't ranking the version of Sorcery that exists in my own head, but rather that book that exists in reality. Parentheses, much worse, unparentheses. Man, that's uh, some real shit. Like, yeah. I'm not excited. One of my biggest fears with this fucking podcast project is that we're going to get to books where, like, I remember them being way better than they actually were because I'm making up wholesale parts of them in my head. Uh, I think I've talked multiple times about how, when I was younger, The Last Continent, the one about Australia, was one of my favorite Discworld books. And I'm fully expecting for that to be the case there, where I'm just totally misremembering parts of the book and that it's really just kind of a mediocre rinsewind jaunt. Um, if it helps, I'm also imagining a version of sorcery where uh, Rinse Wind and Two Flower Kiss. So, you know. Yeah. Now we're talking. Where's the sorcery fan? Don't, nobody needs to research <laughs> the sorcery fan. 
Uh, Nobody needs to waste their time with that. Please do. Uh, listen, listen. If you want to do fan art, just skip ahead. Start drawing the monstrous regiment fan art now, and then send it to us when the episode comes out. It'll take yes. like two years, but it'll be worth it. The gaze will come. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but yeah, thank you. Oh, and there's also a note from um, Ricario. Uh, yes. Uh, says, I have to assume Genua is named for Genoa, the Italian city, regarding the city in uh, Witches Abroad. Why, I don't know, considering it's a French-Caribbean-themed place. Wait, fuck, I really hope it wasn't because of, instead of New Orleans, it's Genua. Oh. Which, I wouldn't put it past Sir Terry, frankly. Yeah. Man loved his puns. God bless his heart. There's some good ones in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like, uh, the fact that the guy's name is Urn is like, I didn't realize until I was looking at the Pratchett file afterwards that it's, you know, what's a Grecian urn about a drachma an hour, right? Like, <laughs> God. But I'm t- <sighs> also, I, one quick Google search later, I cannot find any pictures of Rincewind and Two Flower kissing. Okay, maybe do okay. draw that for maybe us. Maybe we do it need needs to draw to that, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I, by the time we hit interesting times, we're going to need some sort of therapeutic content to get us through that book. So Rincewind and Two Flower making out as boyfriends would be awesome. Like, there's a lot Please. of pictures of, there's a lot of fan of them like hanging out, but none of them like, yeah, but you know, none of them even like could be, embracing, right? It could be more homoerotic is all yeah. I'm saying. It could always be more homoerotic. Yeah. Hang on, hang on. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing some very important research real quick. Uh, Are you searching AO3 or should I? I am, in fact, searching AO3. Okay, good. Can we find... uh, Is there any... Okay, wait, I found a picture of them hugging. That's progress. Nobody wants to write fan fiction about Rincewind. I wonder why. Uh, Yeah. Damn it. Gotta... Hold on. Okay. (laughs) Where are all my Rincies out there? I half expected Grace to hear that AO3 is already being covered and started searching fem fiction. Rincewind categories M slash M. We gotta get on the use net. Okay, so I I yes, there is at least one fic that ships them. There's a few. Uh, Hell yeah. Okay, so I okay. I did. I did find a deviant art post of Rincewind and Two Flower hugging, and all the suggestions on the side are of pony stuff for some reason. Baffling. Like they're hu- You're right, they they're, are. They're humans in the pity in their folder called Pony Fan Art. There are, are we- 19 fics tagged Rincewind slash Two Flower, and one of them is rated mature, so at least someone has thought about it. I'm glad Thank so- you, Thank someone God. is out there doing the Lord's work. Yeah. <laughs> the luggage likes to watch. <laughs> I, I always I assume they fucked inside the luggage. Oh, that's true. They could. It would be an easy place to... Uh... To have a little romantic rendezvous without getting into yeah. the issues of anything. It's your own personal outside. TARDIS. If as long as you're okay with teeth and well, you know, it's plus yeah. you, uh, you know, if you're into that, it can get you in the mood. You know, a little foreplay. That's true. We're ending on that pun. We, we move, move to the right. move to the plug stuff. <laughs> we cannot uh, beat that. I pun. can't believe I was embarrassed about talking about bird genitals earlier. <laughs> Anyways, I'm Iris J. All. I make this podcast along with my friends. It's a good um, podcast. You can also find other things that I do at irisj.net or on my social medias, uh, irisjcomics on Twitter and on Mastodon at mastodon.social. 
Uh, as for my one thing that I will recommend this week, other than um, the book, uh, I'm going to recommend a t-shirt place called Online Ceramics. They're like a couple of guys who run out of LA, and all of their t-shirts are the most bonkers shit maybe ever. Like, they're all very, like, kind of like 70s hippie shit, but also, like, skeletons, and they do all the shirts for, like, whatever's left of the Grateful Dead that still tours, and it's... I can't... My, one of my favorite shirts of them is like it's like a like a like an illustration from like a '70s greeting card of a of a little dog holding up a candle, and on the back in Comic Sans font it says "Puppy on the train gonna ride it," and I don't know what that means, and it's been bouncing around my head for the past week. So check out their stuff. They do some really interesting t-shirts. I, I'm looking I at their like website them. right now, and it is bonkers. Their, their website is a lot, too. It was coded. It looks like it was coded back in 1998, yeah. and they didn't bother to update it. It's wild. Um, but yeah, that's my recommendation. <laughs> oh, I have a Patreon, too. Patreon.com slash IrisJ. That's fun. I am Juniper. Find me on Twitter at Juniper Theory. Uh, I am going to recommend this week... I'm going to recommend the new... I, I could recommend Elden Ring, since I put about 200 hours into it last week, but uh, you already know about that, hopefully. I'm going to recommend the Risk of Rain 2 DLC, because it's been really, really fun. Uh, they added a character that's just... What if we put an FPS character into this? How good are you at quickscoping? And it's fun as hell. Can't stop playing it. Mm. Great time if you like that game. And if you don't like that game, it's a pretty good game. Just don't play it with the DLC for your first five hours or so uh i've never actually played it myself everyone i know says it's really good it's very good if you want a specific type of multiplayer action sort of thing also netrunner because i played a netrunner tournament this week it did great hell yeah good game Woo. uh i have been the internet's beloved princess grace you can find my writing programs podcast posts and merchandise and everything else that's fit to plug at princess.software for my non-me thing, I'd like to plug My Dress Up Darling. It's a very good anime. It's not as horny as you would think, despite being about a girl who kins a character from an erotic visual novel. My Dress Up Darling is such a good fucking uh, anime. It's so good. Fuck. Wait, it I have to rules. go back and change my. I have to go back and change my recommendation. Okay. Please watch the review Starlight movie and then message me about it. Watch review Starlight and then okay. watch the movie and message me about it. Fair enough. On okay, Twitter, I still need to watch that. Me. It's so gay and but I'm dying. I will agree with Grace that My Dress Up Darling. Oh yeah, no, it's great. I've seen it. It's whips really so hard. Oh, it's it's so like good. it's one of those like if you heard the pitch for the show, you'd be like, "Oh, this is otaku trash for scum." But no, it's really good. You have to it's trust. Really good. Like, it's really good. It's less horny than like Fire Force ever was, right? Like. Yeah, it, it feels like so he good. wanted to write otaku trash for scum, but he cared too much about doing research, cared too much about the characters, and cared too much about telling a really good story. So it just turns mm-hmm. into something really good. Yeah, yeah, and like the female character who's supposed to be the hot one is some is actually has like internality and like a life and like a range of emotions and it's yeah. it's really good. Yeah. Whatever. L- look, I'm sorry I'm leapfrogging off of your recommendation, <laughs> but it's a really good recommendation. Look for. Once I finish the season, look forward to my lengthy vis- video essay titled Is Marine Kitagawa a Grace? <laughs>
Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, all right. That's my recommendation. I, I am still Belina, and I'm going to be honest. I didn't think of anything to plug, so rather than force it, I'm just going to say that I'm very tired, so you can find me in bed. Aw, sleepy Belina. Okay. I'll put the Wikipedia entry for bed. <laughs> Thank you. Bed, Lena. Okay. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, also, we are uh, Discoverers. You can find us on anchor.fm slash Discoverers. Or no, DiscPod. Oh my god, I'm tired too. Anchor.fm slash DiscPod. Daylight Savings Time fucked me over this week. Uh, we have social media. DiscPod on Twitter. DiscPod on, at queer.party on Mastodon. We have an email. Disc at hypnovire.us. That's disc at uh, H-Y-P-N-O-V-I-R-U-S. Send us your emails. Uh, whether on topics that we touched on this episode or just on Discworld stuff in general. We love to encourage our listeners to read along with us and to send us your thoughts. It's a conversation, just like every religion ought to be, I think, maybe. Uh, Yeah, until next time, they really were small gods. Bye. Keep on disking, folks. Bye.